This morning we, our task ahead of us is to talk about Jesus is the head of the church. I would like to start by reading about 10 verses in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to open your Bibles there. It is, it is a bit difficult. My mind went several different ways in preparation of this, and you're going to find that out here shortly. And also this Colossians chapter 1, I would like to read the whole thing. I'm not going to do that for interest of time. I think we're going to cut into the middle of one of Paul's long-winded sentences He is known for having sentences that go on and on and on, almost ad infinitum. But what we want today is starting at verse 9, Colossians 1. Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I think it's appropriate there's a period there. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. End of subject. We'll go on. And he is the end of the body, the the head of the body. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. We have just read part of a monumental passage of Scripture. And I would ask you a simple question. First of all, if you want to memorize something, that is a good chapter to memorize. But if you would commit that to memory, I would ask you a question. How could you ever get discouraged? If you have that committed to memory and you would recite that before God every day, what a pickup that would be in your life. May we bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we come before thy throne. We are not hesitant to. Your word tells us that we can do this boldly, come before you in boldness. And we do that even though we are sometime hesitant. But we thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. We thank you that you have communicated to us what is necessary for life and godliness. We thank you for the promises of your word, and many of which we have just read just a short time ago. Lord, we ask that you would be present with us this day, manifest your presence in the person of your spirit. 
we pray a blessing upon all of these young men and women, all these fathers and mothers. Lord, we ask you will help us to meet the challenges of life. We ask that we can be blessed for having been here, for what we hear your spirit speak to us. And above all, Father, we ask that your name will be exalted, for thou art the Holy One, the only wise God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Sometimes it's um, a bit difficult to maybe know where to stop on a topic. Yesterday we talked about Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And I would like to, for the first few minutes this morning, I would like to add just a few more comments on that as we lead us into this subject of Jesus is the head of the church. Now, there's two reasons here. I believe that this introduction I have about a little kind of a shirt tail on yesterday and yet introduction for today. I believe this introduction will apply to tomorrow's topic as well, which is intended to be Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I think this kind of applies to both of them. And to help us maybe, what I'm trying to do in this is to help us get a, a little better grasp on the magnitude of his sacrifice that he made for us and how it relates to his church, which we will be talking about to some degree, as well as also being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I, I don't see this short digression, if you want to call it that, as I, I don't see this as a total digression from what we're really wanting to talk about, but I see it as going down a parallel path. I don't think we're going over here somewhere and then come back. We're going on a parallel path when we talk about the church. So we will go fairly quickly in some of this. Uh, if you want to write down some, some notes, that's fine. I will try to point out the, the key areas that I'm trying to emphasize. But we want to go quickly. What we want to do for the first few minutes is point you out to six views of the Lamb. Six views of the Lamb. Now this is the Lamb of God. We all know this. Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the Lamb that was sacrificed. He is going to appear. This Lamb is going to appear all through the book of all through the Bible. He's, he's prevalent in Genesis and He's there in Revelation and He's sprinkled all the way in between. And I want to give you six examples of that. So uh, this is, in fact, a very brief summary of a sermon that I preached many years ago. And I just want to show how this sacrificial lamb, sacrificial lamb permeates the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And he does indeed accomplish God's plan for individuals and the church. First of all, if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. I'm going to read, I'm not going to read it any more than I really have to, but I want to read Genesis 4, the first five verses. Trying to, again, to get a visual in front of you so you can see some of these things. We're familiar with a lot of these things. We've read these before. But we'll make an application here. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 5. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And we know what happened as a result of that. We know the rest of the story. First of all, I am absolutely sure that both brothers knew exactly what God wanted for a sacrifice. Yet one chose to use the fruit of the ground. He says, well, this is good enough. The other one used exactly what God told him to, and it was accepted. What we see here, the point I want to make is we see right here the lamb is recognized for the very first time. The lamb is recognized, the firstling of the flock. It was going to be offered, it was offered as a sacrifice, so the lamb is now recognized, it's the very beginning, and in this case, it's a lamb for a person. Two phrases, the lamb is recognized in Genesis, and it's a lamb for a person. God, as he said, God had certainly communicated his wishes to both men. One followed those wishes, a life was given, and a blood sacrifice took place, and it was acceptable. Simply stated, God was establishing a precedent that would continue throughout his word. We said yesterday, the life is in the blood, and it is the blood that atones for the sin. God started the plan right here in Genesis. Now then, if you want to go to Exodus chapter 12. And we were there yesterday. I'm not trying to rehash the whole thing, but I have a different point for going through this this time. Genesis chapter 12. We read several verses. We read verses 3 through 7, but just for, for our reiteration this morning and to make a point, we're going to see here when we read these verses, this time we're going to see the Lamb typified the lamb is going to be typified, and now it's a lamb for a family. It's growing. It's getting different every time. There's a sequence we're going through. The lamb is typified, and it's a lamb for a family. Verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying in the tenth day of this month, They shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And then it says he shall take the blood and strike it on the door two side posts, and on the upper post of the house wherein you shall eat it. So the lamb is now typified. I, uh, this was the institution of the Passover, which we stated yesterday. And so this was security. When the blood was applied, the death angel would pass over the household of all who had the blood applied to the doorposts and lentils, and they protected the firstborn of that family. The lamb has been recognized. It's a lamb for a person. The lamb has been typified. It's a lamb for a family. Now Isaiah chapter 53, if you will. Isaiah 53. We are all familiar with this. In our church, we typically read this chapter on Saturday morning 
for every love feast occasion, no matter what district you go to. That's kind of our tradition. And so I think we're familiar enough with it. I don't believe that I'm going to read it right now and take the time for that. But I simply want to point out to this a couple of things. In Isaiah 53, the Lamb is personified. This is the third step. The Lamb is now personified. It's a Lamb for a nation. The family is growing. It's getting bigger all the time. The Lamb is personified, and it's a Lamb for a, a nation. There are 70, more than 75 personal pronouns in this short chapter here, only 12 verses long. 75 personal pronouns. It's a very personal portion of Scripture. Beyond a reasonable doubt, as far as we're concerned, it is talking about Messiah, the Lord Jesus who is to come. The one who was willing to take the penalty of our sins, individuals, entire nations upon himself, yet many Jewish people don't even know that this chapter is in their Bible or in their Jewish book. And what I'm going to say here is in no way, is in no way castigating the Jewish people. I will never do that. I love the Jewish people. But what I'm going to say to you is statement of fact. I want, to, I want to kind of point out to you their eyes are blinded for a reason. We don't know why, but their eyes are blinded. Here's what I'm going to say. A, a major part of Jewish people, orthodoxy, and Jewish orthodoxy don't know about this chapter. And here's why. In the Jewish synagogues on their Sabbath day's worship, they have a prescribed liturgy that they go through. And that means in the first Sabbath of the year, we read this portion of Scripture. And then the next Saturday, we read this portion of Scripture. And on the third Saturday, we read another portion of Scripture. And next year, we start all over on the same portion again and again and again. They don't read all of their Old Testament scriptures in their readings and that tells us that there's a lot of people that don't read in between too when we get to the, the end of this and realize what's going on. But some point in time in, in the calendar year along about the latter part of August or the first of September, <clears throat> they're going to finish the reading for their Sabbath. They're going to conclude it at Isaiah 52 verse 12. They stop there. And the next Sabbath, they will start in and they will begin reading in Isaiah 54. And so they skip over the servant suffering here. And so you could ask some, well, why do you do that? Well, they don't really know. That's what the rabbis have told them to do. And so you ask a rabbi and you're going to get different answers. Uh, one answer will be, well, obviously we can't read everything. There's not enough Sabbaths in the year. So we can't read everything. Yes, but why skip over this one? They don't know. I think their eyes are blinded. Some rabbis would say, as far as the interpretation of this, when they are presented with it, they will say, well, that's about the nation of Israel. That's talking about the suffering nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is, is the personal pronoun here. They are the ones who are suffering and all of that. Well, we don't believe that. We believe it is indeed talking about the Lord Jesus. It's amazing. Um, many, many accounts of people 
who were witnessing to Jewish people. And uh, I know one account in particular, if anybody of you ever get Israel My Glory and read the accounts of Zvi as, as he's talked to people, it's been very fascinating. He will take his Bible and he will begin to read to them at the appropriate time. You don't just dump it in their face, but he will read to them Isaiah 53 and they'll say, no, 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 no. We don't read that New Testament book. And he says, but this is in your Bible too. Looky here. And he shows them and they're just, they're amazed. And, and people have come to faith in Jesus once they know about Isaiah 53. Point in all that is, the lamb is personified. It's a lamb for a nation. Let's go on. John chapter 1. We're going to go into the New Testament now. John chapter 1. And it's very simple here. Only one verse. We find out in John chapter 1, the lamb is now identified and it's a lamb for the whole world. The lamb is identified, and it's a lamb for the whole world. John says, behold. And if we were to do this in today's society, if we were to use an expression, we'd say, hey, look over there. Behold, he said. And he said, behold the lamb. Well, they knew about lambs. They were shepherds. There wasn't very much that you couldn't tell them about lambs. They knew lamb, so, so what's the big deal? Behold the Lamb of God. Well, that is a little different. Um, what do you mean, John? What do you mean the Lamb of God? Most of the lambs, all the lambs I know of, have ever raised, why, they're just lambs out in the field. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away sin. Well, now then, that is different. A lamb that takes away sin. The lambs that we have been offering all these centuries, as we found out yesterday, they just cover sin. This lamb takes away sin. Well, uh, maybe they're listening by now. I don't know. But now he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. One lamb. You mean to tell me, John, one lamb is going to atone for the sin of the whole world? If they had taken it seriously, if their eyes had been opened, it might have been different. But that wasn't God's plan. This lamb will in fact, does in fact, take away the sin of the world when we come to him in faith believing. This tells us that Jesus was and Jesus still is the universal lamb. And his sacrifice would be efficacious. It would do what it's supposed to do for whosoever will come to him in and wheresoever they are. And when that word went out, behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. When that, world, when that uh, word went out, Satan launched an all out attack against him and his followers unto this day. And Satan made sure he followed through with his plan and Jesus ended up on a cross. Not a surprise to God. God knew that was going to happen anyway, but that's the way it took place. So the lamb has been identified and it's a lamb for the world. Now then we go to Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> We're going to want to read just a little bit here. Revelation chapter 5. Verses 5 through 14. I don't want to spend too much time here. Revelation 5 through 14. Uh, this is, I'm going to give you a, 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 a prelude of what, why I'm going here. Here we are going to see the Lamb magnified. 
The lamb is magnified, and now it's a lamb for the entire universe. It's still the same lamb all the way through the scriptures. The lamb is magnified. It's a lamb for the universe. Verse 5 of Revelation 5. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and hend to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain. We know who that lamb is. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, and having and every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made unto us, us unto our king, God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The Lamb is magnified. It's a Lamb for the universe. And I don't believe I need to make any more comment on those verses that I just read other than to say, In your quiet time, why don't you read that and why don't you think about that and why don't you meditate on that and see if you can get a mental picture of what that's all about and I don't think your imagination is good enough to do do it justice it's awesome let's go on Revelation 22 the last the last example here Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5 here we are going to see the Lamb at last glorified. The Lamb is glorified and it is a Lamb who is sovereign over all for eternity. We said the Lamb was recognized, the Lamb was typified, the Lamb was personified, the Lamb was identified, the Lamb was magnified, and now He is glorified. It started out as a lamb for a person, then a lamb for a family, a lamb for a nation, a lamb for the world, a lamb for the universe, and now the lamb who is sovereign over all for eternity. Let's read it. 22 verses 1 through 5. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. <clears throat> and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, 
And there shall be no night there. They need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We as believers in and followers of this Lamb will be in His presence, praising Him and worshiping Him for all eternity. And if you have any thoughts in your mind, about thinking that's going to be a boring existence, please, it's not going to be. Jesus Christ did not go to the cross and suffer all of that trauma to redeem you and I so that you and I can go into heaven and spend eternity there and be eternally bored. Not going to happen. We're going to be gainfully occupied. And we're going to praise Him. And we're going to worship Him. We're going to do whatever else He wants us to do. And we're going to enjoy every minute of it. Please. We simply cannot imagine the glories of His, of his heaven and His new Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, which is a, a paraphrase of Isaiah's writings in 64 and 4, says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. My dearly beloved, be prepared to be astounded. Okay, let's leave that. I, I uh, thank you for letting me do that. I don't know that you had a choice, but I, I just felt pressed to do that. I wanted to share that with you. Now we want to look at Jesus as the head of the church. This is the same lamb we've been talking about the whole time. So we're going to ask a question as we start off. Jesus is the head of the church. Well, what is the church? Now that's not a silly question. Because it depends on the context of the conversation as to how we answer that question. Because the church is a building, a structure, a building that we can walk into. It's a body and it's a bride. So what you're talking about? What is the context of the, of the question you're really asking? If somebody walks in to your relatively new church building and they say, I like your new church. Well, they're talking about the building. If, if they have another application, it should be clear to us what they're talking about. The first New Testament, New Testament reference to a church is in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus was intelligent enough that he wasn't telling Peter that I'm going to build a structure right on top of this big rock over here. No, he's not talking about that. We know better. He says, I'm going to build my church on this rock. And it was what, like Mark told us the other day, ecclesia. It's the called out. It's the assembly. Mark says it's the gathering. And I like that, Mark. Really, it, it is good. It, it's the called out. It's the assembly of people. It's a gathering. It's a religious congregation. Thus, we can say, I believe it's very safe to say this, the church is those who are called out by God and gathered as a religious assembly. Is that okay, Mark? Make, we're gathered together. We're not here for a convention. We're gathered in a religious assembly. So that's the church. And Mark has given us a lot of different illustrations where he's been in mud huts and all that. And he says, that's the church. That's right. 
He's exactly right. It takes, it, it, it's different things for different times and places. And the word that's translated uh, ecclesia is, I believe, used 80 times plus in the New Testament. It's always the same word. Well, that's two ref uses of the word church, but also it can mean bride. Now, Jesus does not specifically say in the New Testament, the church is my bride. You won't find that anywhere. It's not written that way. But w there are several scriptural references that clearly portray Jesus Christ as the bridegroom, and therefore, a bridegroom is going to have to have a bride. That's common sense. And the church, those who are called out, the assembly, are His bride. Notice Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, read like this. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. Now, do the math. If his wife hath made herself ready, she's got to be a bride before she can be a wife. And so maybe the bride is just a short-term thing. That's the way brides are. They're, when they become married, they're no longer brides, they're wives. But his wife has made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith to me, write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think Dan referred to this marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe it was last night, maybe a time or two. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a blessing that will be, that we can be there in His presence. Again, hard to imagine what it's going to be like, but let your imagination go, that's fine. Ephesians 5 makes a very, very clear statement to us that the relationship of a husband and a wife should be patterned after and compared to the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church, His bride, His wife. If you want to use those terms, they, they are kind of overlapping. I wouldn't say they're all exactly synonymous. It implies different things, but they're overlapping. So we conclude from this that Jesus is, in fact, the head of His of his family, the church, and may I remind you, it's not your church, it's not my church, it's his church. He purchased it with his own blood. It belongs to him, and we are privileged to be a part of it. So, how did all that happen? Was God just sitting up on his eternal throne one day and... Um, he was struck with an idea and he says, son, I'd like to have a bride for you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it the name church. Was it quite that simple? No. God doesn't do anything that way. God doesn't operate without a plan and a quite detailed one at that. God has a plan for these things with usually there are quite a few precedents leading up to the real thing. And that's what I want to show you right now. The real thing here is the church, yes, but there are some precedents leading up to this church that we know about today. I want to start with the Old Testament and look at some precedings and some practices that took place there. There are several examples. You could go through the scripture and find them. Examples, illustrations of the patriarchs as they lived in Old Testament times where they would 
build an altar and offer sacrifice to God in worship. Special occasions, dedication of, of things and, and offerings for sin, it all was part of building an altar and offering a sacrifice to God. The purpose was that they knew that they were to acknowledge God as the supremely high and holy deity that they worshipped. And this was their method of worshipping Him. He had instilled it in their hearts that you build an altar, you offer a sacrifice here, and then they, that was, He was the one who was deserving of their worship and praise. It also meant something else. It meant that these men who did this, the patriarchs and such, they recognized in their own heart that they were sinners and they needed to offer this blood sacrifice on the altar to God to atone for their sins. All of this is kind of fitting in with what we have been talking about, especially yesterday. But then as time went on, the altar was accompanied by a tabernacle especially prevalent in the wilderness wanderings. They built a tabernacle, and uh, I think Dan drew a little sketch, a quick sketch of it yesterday, the rectangle on the board, you remember that? 45 feet by 15 feet, and one end of it, 15 foot square, was the Holy of Holies. In simple form, looking down on it, that's the tabernacle. It was really a tent, a portable tent that could be moved. So as the children of Israel wandered from one place to the next, they could take their tabernacle with them. Take it down, move it, set it back up. But it was a place where they would meet with God and a place wherein He could reside. When they set it back up again, He would, he would take up residence in there, in the Holy of Holies. More time passed by, and the children of Israel finally came out of the wilderness. They settled in the land, and that is when God allowed Solomon to build a house for him. First time it ever happened. But he allowed Solomon to build him a house, and it was a pretty elaborate thing at that. And it, this house then became the center of their worship and their worship center, and a place where they sacrificed to their God. That house ultimately was torn down by enemies of God. So rather than rebuild that right then, because they couldn't do that, they were under uh, Roman rule and various other uh, rulers there, they were allowed to build smaller sanctuaries or, or little synagogues in town. So you didn't have to go so far. You could go to your local synagogue and your, uh, or your sanctuary and worship God there. They would meet with God. They would worship Him, him in a congregated capacity. Does that sound like a church to you? It's kind of getting there. All of this pointed toward the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ, the bearer of our sins, the bearer of the sins of all who are in His church. The New Testament tells us about the coming of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. And in the New Testament times, early church, we find out that the New Testament saints now began to meet for worship in homes, in barns, in open fields, in caves, wherever they could. Sometimes they needed a large room for a large crowd. Sometimes they needed secrecy from the authorities. They would go to caves. I've been to one of those caves over in the land of Switzerland and it is very sobering to think about what took place there. Persecution has been around from the very beginning. That's why they had to go to caves to do it under 
cloak of secrecy, and persecution is still raging in some parts of the world because Satan hates us. He hates the church of God. He is absolutely opposed to it. Today we have the freedom to worship unhindered and unafraid. And I would encourage you to pray that it may always be so. We kind of tend to take it for granted. Um, I pray that we will not see any kind of persecution. I pray that the Lord will take us out before that ever comes. Keep us strong, keep us faithful to Him until He does do that. But we have been privileged to build uh, special buildings that we call churches or church houses for the express purpose of meeting together and to, and to worship and sing praises to the God of our salvation. And we love to do that. We look forward to Sundays when we do that. And while we're, we're indeed blessed with, with that privilege of, of building these structures and we can all get together and worship God, God does not reside in that church building waiting for us to come and meet Him every Sunday morning or Wednesday night. That's not where He lives. God has taken up residence in you and I. He dwells within inside us. We are His residence. We are His sanctuary. We are where His Holy Spirit dwells. And it's entirely up to us now to make ourselves a warm and comfortable and inviting place for Him to dwell in. There would be a lot of illustrations to point out what I'm going to say, but I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think that all the Spirit of Almighty God wants to dwell in me if I am an angry, rebellious, uncouth man who rants on his employees and rails on his wife and family, and then I clean myself up, I put on my happy church face, and I go to church on Sunday morning and everything's fine. No. He doesn't want to dwell in me that way. And we know that. In his Mars Hill address, Paul stated in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and following, he said, The God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, seeing that He giveth life, He giveth to all life and breath and all things. So there's the testimony. The Spirit of God dwells within us. Again, we hear Jesus say in John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18, and this is not the whole rendering here, but He's talking about His Comforter. I think we recited this here a couple days ago. He says, you know Him, the Comforter, and He dwells in you, and He shall be in you. He's going to stay there. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God and that His Spirit, the Spirit of God dwells in you? Aren't you aware of that? And we say, yes, we are. So in a very real sense, all of that to say, the very real sense, when we leave home to go to church on Sunday mornings, we put our families in the car and we go there, we take ourselves and our family, and in a very real sense, we take the Spirit of God with us. We take Him to church. You ever think about taking God to church with you? In a real sense, we do. His Holy Spirit goes with us. He resides in us. And the sobering part about that is, I would ask you, 
has your church or your worship experience been kind of dry and lifeless from time to time? Did you bring the Spirit with you? Have you had appropriate lifestyle last week that you feel comfortable that the Spirit is still comfortable in you? Is He still in you? You might think about that. I think the Spirit is still in us. I don't think He comes and goes and comes and goes. But there may be times when He doesn't feel very comfortable in our lives. And it's up to us to provide comfort for Him by appropriate life. Now we want to take a closer look at the scripture that tells us plainly Jesus is the head of the church. We go back to where we started, Colossians chapter 1. We'll spend the rest of our time here. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 and 19 and it says, And He, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, The church, in case you were wondering what this was all about, the body and the church, it's one and the same thing. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. I'll tell you what happened to me when I was studying this and preparing for this moment right now to talk about this. I read it, and then I reread it, and then I read it again, and I thought to myself, I have a problem. How do I explain the Scripture to anyone The scripture that says Jesus Christ is everything I have, everything I need, everything I hope to be or have. He's he's all. He's my all in all. Beloved, this is a staggering scripture. Jesus Christ is preeminent. And He supplies all our needs. He takes care of everything for us. We must be found in Him to be sure. But there's nothing lacking when we are in Christ Jesus. So the problem that I have is to try to, I'll say, break this down into bite sizes so that we can appreciate it more fully. And I don't know that I can do that. Um, There are probably a lot of different ways to do that. There would be a lot of different ways to even talk to you uh, about Jesus being the head of the church. If this task were given to a half a dozen men, it would all be edifying and they would have taken different venues to get here, different ways. But we're trying to point out to you that Jesus Christ, being the head of the church, is our all in all. We could go all those different paths and yet we would all come to the same conclusion when it's all over, that He is in fact all in all. So the first thing we want to do is we want to look at what God the Father has done for us based upon the sacrifice of His only begotten Son who is in fact the head of the church. Let's look at verse 12. We're just going to kind of take the liberty of cutting into this and pull out some highlights. Verse 12, We are to give thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. 
We are supposed to give thanks unto our Heavenly Father, God the Father. He has made us meet, and the word means He has qualified us. By coming to faith in His Son, we have met the criteria that He has established for Him to dwell within us, His Holy Spirit to come down. So He alone qualifies us for this. And when we are qualified, we are now going to be partakers of the inheritance that He has prepared for His saints. And that inheritance, we can't even begin to draw a picture of that. It's more than just a bag of coins or a wheelbar full of coins. It's, it's not ranches. It's not anything like that. It starts with a mansion on the Father's estate. And that's about the best I can do from there. It's gonna, it's, it gets better from that point. We are partakers of the inheritance that He has prepared for the, state, for the saints. Next, He has delivered us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. What an enormous blessing that is. Dan has had some pictures on this whiteboard here from time to time about God the Father and, the, and, the, and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and us and how we all dwell together. And all outside is the power of darkness. That's true. But we're protected from that. We are delivered from that. It has no control over us. Yes, we can go out there and we can experiment, but don't do it. We are protected from those evil things that they can't penetrate the wall of defense that God the Father has set up for us if we don't want them to. Yes, they can take our life, but they can't take our faith. They can't take our salvation. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. And I think in our morning devotions... Our, I think it was read in there. Yeah, it's translated. Who was it? One of the Old Testament characters was translated. Enoch. Yeah. Enoch was translated. He left earth and he was translated into heaven. Webster says that translation is to move, to carry on, to change places. And it says further in a religious connotation, transfer to heaven without death. Fits Enoch perfectly. It's what it is. He has translated us. And so the translation of this verse then, we've been qualified, been delivered, we've been translated. Translation says while we're here on, as pilgrims on planet earth, we are already citizens in the heavenly kingdom because of our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross of Calvary. We are citizens now in a heavenly kingdom. Now let's look at what Jesus has done for us. And this is exciting stuff. It really is. Uh, I'm telling you, if these facts, if this chapter doesn't start getting your mind buzzing and, and, and enlarge your vision a little bit, um, I wonder what will. Here's what the Word says. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's no surprise to any one of you. We have heard this before, but looking at it in this context today, He has redeemed us, He has bought us back, He has paid the ransom price to take us back from the clutches of Satan, and, he, and that price was His own blood. And it doesn't stop there. He hasn't just redeemed us, he has, He's bought us back, and now He has forgiven our sins as well. He has redeemed us and forgiven our sins in the past and he will continue to forgive our sins in the future as we come before him in humble contrition verse 15 tells us that 
He is the invisible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He is the image. The word is icon, and you are familiar with icons on your computer. You just move your mouse over and you click on the one that looks like a safe, and so that's going to save what you was working on there. You click on the magnifying glass and it enlarges what you're doing. You click on these little icons, it's a representation of something that you want to do. It's a representation of that, and so you know what that's all about. He's the icon, the representation, the manifestation of God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer goes even farther when he says that Jesus Christ is the express image, the character character, the engraving, the exact copy in every detail. It's like the difference between a picture here that I can only look at in a flat plane and a character is an engraving, it's 3D. It's now got all the details and everything in there. He is the exact image of God the Father. In John chapter 14, Philip was kind of confused or concerned. He said to Jesus, well, just show us the Father, and that's, that's going to be good enough. Just show us the Father. Who are you talking about? And Jesus said to him, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. He's the exact image of his Father. Verse 16 for by Him, Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Jesus Christ is the Creator and sustainer of all things. He wasn't there by the side of the Father like a little child kicking pebbles in the water or throwing pebbles out in the lake to watch the rings and just idly doing something. No, Jesus Christ did it. He's the Creator. And the Father watched Him. And the Father was pleased when it was all done. The Father was pleased to see what His Son did. We'll find that out here shortly. This verse alone should humble, it should shut the mouths of every evolutionist who ever chose to believe in some kind of random chance. However, they don't believe it. They won't accept it. This is conclusion. This fixed with all the rest of Scripture. This is nothing new here. But evolutionary thought does not want to accept it. In fact, the matter is, they are willingly ignorant, as Second Peter says, chapter 3, verse 5. And these people, I am not castigating them, I'm saying this is a statement of fact. They have said, one of the top evolutionists at the top of the food chain said this, we will believe anything but the Bible. They have stated that. Talk about a bias. They're not even going to go there. They're already biased. They will not even entertain it. <clears throat> Verse 17. And he is before all things, <clears throat> and by him all things consist. That simply tells us, it's kind of a reaffirms. Verse 16, that he was, existed prior to all things, and he is now the one who holds all things together. Verse 18. <clears throat> and... He, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence in your life, in everything you say, in everything you do. And I will confess to you, you will know this, that is exceedingly hard to do. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the body. Nothing could be easier to understand. That's pretty simple language there. For a body to be alive and functional, it must have a head. We understand that. Jesus Christ is our head. He directs our lives. He is the command center for our lives. When your brain, when your command center tells you, don't walk out in front of that car, and you know that if you do, there's going to be a serious consequence of that because you're old enough, you have gotten to the point, you know that a moving object striking a body is going to be serious. Little children don't know that. We have to teach them and they finally get to an age where they identify with that. But your brain tells us, you don't walk out in front of that car. You obey your brain because you know it's going to be a serious consequence if you ignore it. In the same way, Jesus Christ tells us in His still small voice, He tells us what to do that we might not only survive, but that we might thrive as we walk with Him. It's His kingdom. We are in His service. He prompts us along the way. We need to be sensitive to His voice speaking to us. When you hear in your mind, don't walk out in front of the car, it's probably not the Spirit of God. That's your own common sense. It may be the Spirit. It wouldn't take that away. From when you, but when you are clearly, when He communicates something to you regarding your spiritual life, you can trust Him. That is the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ is the beginning of all things. The Bible says He's the firstborn from the dead. He went to the cross, He suffered and died, He is now resurrected from the grave so that we can know. Capital letters, K-N-O-W, we can know there is a resurrection for us and for all people because of Him. Some resurrected to eternal life, some resurrected to eternal damnation. He is preeminent. He is supreme over all. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 Luke tells us there, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other being that can provide salvation. Finally, we get to verse 19. It says, for it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus Christ, should all the fullness dwell. Here's where we get the thought that God wasn't just simply satisfied with His Son, what He did and is now doing, but He is pleased. There's a difference between being satisfied and being pleased. Satisfied, I could ask you to do a project, and when you're all finished, you could present it to me, and I'd say, "Mm, okay, that'll work. It's not exactly what I had in mind, but okay, I'm satisfied. It'll work. Let's go ahead and use it. On the other hand, you do something on the project, and when I'm pleased with it, I say, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. That's beautiful. Yeah, let's do that. There's a difference. God is pleased with what His Son has done. 
In his final statement of approval, aside from the fact that he raised him from the, from the grave, that was, his, that was his signature, his stamp of approval on what his son did. He raised him from the grave. But now the final thing is he bestows all of his fullness on his son. The fullness of the Godhead is present in the person of his son. The word is pleroma, and it doesn't mean just full or complete. If I would fill this bottle of water and say, yep, that's full, that's not what it's talking about. This pleroma is full to the point of overflowing, and it still keeps on coming. It's now, it's, it's, it's flowing over the side, it's rolling across the table, it's down on the floor, and there's more coming. It hasn't stopped. That's overflowing. That's pleroma. The goodness and the fullness of God just keeps flowing from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son. God, in His in His fullness, has taken up residence in His Son, and it's not a temporary thing. It will continue to inhabit the Son, Jesus Christ. So as we conclude here shortly, is there any question in your mind as to how or why Jesus Christ was and still is ordained by God the Father to be the head of His church? Jesus fulfilled all the requirements. There never has been, there never will be anyone else who could meet the infinitely detailed requirements, qualifications that were outlined, required by God. Jesus, with absolute precision, did everything that the Father required. He agreed to that and He didn't miss a step along the way. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He is creator and sustainer of this entire universe. He left the glory of heaven and came down here to this grubby planet Earth to suffer and die for you and I that we might have eternal life in Him. Wow. We can hear Paul say in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The New Testament Gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ has issued a call to whosoever will, wheresoever they are, to come to Him in faith. And then when those people come to Him, they can gather together in a gathering, an assembly, in a place of worship. They don't, they're not only the church there, they'd be the church scattered as well, but they are part of the family of God. They are part of His church when they come to Him in faith believing. And maybe, let me make it clear here, you don't have to be sitting inside of a church building to be part of His church. No. You can be alone out in the mountaintop. You're still part of His church. You're one of His family. He has paid the price for our sins. He has promised us new life here and eternal life hereafter. Let's read verses 20 through 22 to 24 and we'll close. <clears throat> 20, yeah, 20 to 24. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Wow! 
That's what he does for us. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Beloved, he is... The we have, he is the creator of all things, and when we come to him, we have everything to gain, nothing to lose. If we spurn the call, we have nothing to gain and everything to lose.